a new hope rising. Darkness has once again been overthrown. Beauty unveiled and unrivaled. Sounds of life fill the air. I inhale the crisp notes of creation like a fresh glass of cold water. Vivid in colour, rich in texture, a feast like no other. Those who stop to eat, hunger no more. Thirsts are quenched, satisfied and safe, grounded and true to the few who stop to eat. Friends, this is Morgan Snyder, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Our mission and heart here is to go deep, to immerse ourselves in the depth and breadth of the life of God. This is for the few, and it's a space unapologetically to be men, to go after the masculine soul, to give men space and what perhaps they need more than anything else. We need permission, permission to explore the deep heart of what God meant when he meant masculinity, permission to be honest about dreams and desires and struggles and hopes, permission to be men and to become the kind of men in whom women are in good hands, that children are loved well and loved deeply, that all expressions of the created world thrive and are well because of strong, wholehearted men who can live and offer their strength on behalf of others from a place of wholeheartedness and union with God. That's what we're after. That's where we're going. And today we're going deep. So buckle up. I want to start with a story. It's a story from a book called Becoming Attached by Robert Karen. And Karen speaks of a researcher named Bowlby who was doing a research project on a group of young boys who all had in common the behavior and the activity of constant theft. The story goes that six-year-old Derek was the first young thief that Bowlby met at the clinic. He had been referred to for his persistent thieving, his truancy, staying out very late. He appeared to come from a normal, happy family with sensible, affectionate parents and an older brother who seemed perfectly well-adjusted. Derek's infancy was unremarkable, but at 18 months, he contracted diphtheria and was sent to a hospital. He remained hospitalized for nine months without ever seeing his parents, which was the standard procedure at that time in history. The hospital staff adored him, but when he came home, he seemed strange, or better said, he seemed a stranger. He called his mother nurse, and he showed no affection. His mother said it seemed like looking after someone else's baby. Derek so stubbornly refused to eat that he was finally allowed to starve for a time. After a year and a half, he seemed to settle down, but he remained strangely detached, unmoved by either affection or punishment. What do we make of this? Though that story may be a unique one that was captured in research in the mid-1900s, where there was a revolutionary movement in understanding this concept of attachment. The story may be unique, but it is universal in its implications on the souls of men and women. How are we formed? How do we become who we were meant to be? In that story, the soul of the boy moves through the very familiar and heavily documented stages of a soul when it is detached, when it's deprived from mom in its most formative years. And the stages are protest to despair to detachment. 
And it's a process that leads to a place where the soul actually becomes indifferent to maternal care. Friends, there are these core questions that you've heard me speak of many times if you've tracked over these years and over this decade with Become Good Soil. They're the central questions, I believe, of masculine initiation, the questions of who is God, really? Who am I? What is the nature of the story in which I find myself? And what is the frontier of my masculine initiation? If we back up from the details and the specifics of our days, what we'll often find is our search for the answer to those questions and our beliefs that we have formed about those questions become the central guiding forces of our very particular choices that we are making moment by moment and day by day. And so we have to back up at 30,000 feet and recover the questions, recover an orientation so that we might go into the specificity of our particular lives to live out life as it was meant to be. If we go back to the core fabric of creation and recover the central truth, the central narrative that comes to us in the sacred scriptures. We're reminded that we were created, we were formed in the Imago Dei, the image of God. We were made and destined to rule and reign over creation in a sort of creative partnership with God himself. So friends, just stop there and hold on to this idea created in the image of God and destined to rule and reign as women and men over all of creation in a creative partnership, participation with God himself. We were meant to rule and reign out of our true identity. And so here's what's so critical. We will live and operate about who we've come to believe we are. So that identity must be recovered. It must be healed. It must be matured. And that true identity was never intended to be separate from union with God. See, everything hinges on knowing who we are as sons, as students, as warriors, as kings, in order that we might become the kind of kings who can rule ruin courage and sacrifice. Everything hinges on knowing who we are as sons, as students, as warriors, as kings, and becoming the kind of kings who can rule and reign with dignity, with integrity, with love, to offer strength on behalf of those who are not protected, to offer a voice to the voiceless, to offer representation to those underrepresented, to offer protection for those who have been violated. That's masculinity in its restored form. And I believe at the central nature of recovering our identity, of living from our true identity, the gospel introduces this wild idea of reparenting us. Or another phrase I like to use is repairing our parenting. And not our parenting of our sons and daughters, though that happens as fruit, but actually repairing the work that God is doing to parent us as a father and as a mother. Psalm 68, five and six has this wild invitation and proclamation of sorts where it says, to the fatherless, God will be a father. To the widow, he is champion friend. That is to say, to those who have been abandoned or find themselves in lack and loneliness, God is a champion friend. To the orphan, he makes them part of a family. Friends, the central movement and energy of God's kingdom, what I want to suggest is this action to restore family as the central expression, the central DNA of the people of God. And at the epicenter of family is to restore our relationship with God as a father and as a mother. Now, as I say that, you might 
already find that kind of strange or unorthodox in ways because we all inherit a way of seeing a lens that's very cultural, that causes all of us, every one of us to have great bias. But if you unpack the nature of the story, what we will find is these two narratives, that there is a restoration of father, that is to say masculine love, to restore our validation as men. But I believe that that is the gateway actually to a deeper restorative work, the restoration of mother, or that is to say feminine love, where masculine love in which we are forged restores validation. Feminine love is where we are formed and it restores self-worth. It restores this central idea that's so deep often functioning below our conscious awareness of a sense of worthiness and belonging. And so friends, I wanna wrestle with this very um, evocative and, and central idea that we must recover a healthy relationship with masculine love and feminine love. How do we restore a way of being in the world where we are so rooted in God's love, both in masculine and feminine, that we become unstoppable. Our question of who we are is settled. And there is an ever-increasing reservoir and wellspring of life that flows from within us out to a broken world. You see, friends, God is the headwaters of gender. Just pause with me for a moment because the scriptures say all things were created in him and through him, and God creates them male and female. And so out of the actual personhood of God flows everything masculine and everything feminine. So here's what's really important. I believe that we're created in the image of God as men and women, and those are eternal expressions, soulful expressions of the nature of our DNA and our image bearing. But both of those genders are encapsulated in God himself. God is genderful. He is the headwaters from which all gender flows. And so today I wanna focus on this idea of feminine love this very broad category of all things that we have come to taste in the categories of perhaps a wife or a mother or simply perhaps the category of beauty, often through nature and the healing power, the healing power of nature and its beauty, the healing power of a mother's love, the healing power of healthy, strong, emotional uh, connection and physical connection with a wife. Frederick Beekner has a story that as a boy, he fell in love with a girl from Bermuda. And he said, as he was simply reflecting on this deep, evocative love that he felt welling up within him, he said this, he said, it was all the beauty I longed for beyond the beauty I longed for in her. Friends, this is very deep. And so go here with me for a moment. Beekner was no longer talking about the girl from Bermuda he fell in love with. He's talking about something beyond the girl, something that was coming through the girl. He longed for a beauty beyond the beauty he longed for in her. Friends, this is so important as men that there's something that comes through feminine love and often we attach it in a very a myopic view to a wife or to a girlfriend or to an affair or to mother, but she's never the thing. It's never the thing. And that's why beauty in nature is actually closer to the real thing because the thing itself was meant to be a doorway to a greater thing and a greater reality. And that is the beauty of God. That's the feminine heart of God, the feminine care of God in all of God's comfort and nourishment and compassion and tenderness and communicating from God's soul to our soul, son, you're accepted, you are loved, you belong.
You do nothing to earn it, and you can do nothing for it to be revoked. Now, pause with me. This is very deep because we are so programmed in our habituated self out of our our false self and our ego to earn everything. God says from this deep feminine place, this deep mothering place, son, you are accepted here and now. You are loved. You belong. You do nothing to earn it and you can do nothing for it to be revoked. Friends, I wonder what we would become what life would actually feel like if we became the kind of person who believed this at the core of our being, that we were fully accepted, fully loved, fully known, that we were without lack, that we were saturated and filled, that we were comforted, that we were fed, that we were safe. You see, friends, this force shapes our fundamental way of being in the world. And in my world, whatever your world is, our fundamental way of being is a reflection of how we've come to believe what we believe about God's feminine love or lack thereof. Because when we come to a very tactile, soulful, experiential reality of the feminine love of God, of that robust provision, we become the kind of person that can say there is goodness and kindness and care in the world. We operate and live in such a way where we believe there's a strength and a provision at work on my behalf. Even in a scarce world, in a world with lack, we come to a deep conviction that there's a reservoir of provision into which we can always access life. Dan Allender wrote about this a bit in his book, Sabbath, and he's writing on Diane Ackerman's book. And this is what he says. He says, I don't recall being in the womb, but I have never considered the peace of that home as deeply and richly until I read Diane Ackerman's sea rhythm, heart canids, warm lullaby words. I am mesmerized by this question. Is that what I felt? I cannot know, but I can say that I want what Ackerman pens to be an experience of being so near to God that I can hear the cradle song of God's heart, the lapping resonance of her breathing and holding ground and the holding ground of her skin surrounding me in divine safety and warmth. To disparage sensuousness is to stand at arm's length from the incarnation, allowing it to be objective and abstract. Friends, this is so important. To disparage sensuousness is to stand at arm's length from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it stays, it remains objective and abstract. Perhaps it's not the beauty that we long for in her, but it's the beauty we long for beyond the beauty we long for in her. You see, how we see shapes everything. How we answer these fundamental questions of masculine initiation. What lens are you using and for this question of who is God really? What is God like? Today, I want to reintroduce this idea that the epicenter of the gospel project is a movement of God in reparenting. There's a fundamental reaching in the masculine soul to be fed and nourished by feminine love and validated by masculine love. We are given that desire because it was intended to be fulfilled by the heart of God. And so these two fundamental questions are kind of the framework for this piece of teaching today. How are you daily receiving masculine validation? And how are you daily receiving feminine nourishment? And I ask those questions very specifically. I think it's important to reflect on the dailies because our theology 
can live in the space of big ideas that never become operational, but the daily, hourly, and moment-by-moment choices we are making with our own soul reveal the deepest truths about what we've come to believe. And so I'll ask it again. How are you daily receiving masculine validation? Not something you received on a mountaintop or at some retreat or in some Bible study, but in your everyday life right now. And how are you receiving daily feminine nourishment? What I want to explore more deeply and invite you to consider with deep curiosity in this decade is the story of feminine love. As a man, what have you done with feminine love? What is your story related to feminine love? What was the nature of it in your earliest hours and days and years as a boy? How did it play out, the story of you receiving or not receiving feminine love? As you grew from boyhood to adolescence to young adulthood and beyond, where did you look for feminine love? What do you think of when you hear the word mother? What do you think of when you hear the word wife? What do you think of when you think of beauty. What have you done with this category and how is it shaping you? And how would you recover what is true about what the gospel offers as a place of restoring us, our soul attached to the deepest place of feminine love? We're going to explore a couple of the ideas today, but I've taught on this in multiple settings, most recently with the Become Good Soil intensive alumni. I've captured some of those teachings, further recommendations on this category on another hidden webpage that's simply becomegoodsoil.com forward slash mother. So if you have the courage to unpack this and dig deeper, perhaps even with some other like-hearted allies, check out becomegoodsoil.com forward slash mother. But as we dive deep today, I want to wrestle as we talk about your story of feminine love with these two ideas um, in juxtaposition. And the first is secure attachment. And the second is maternal deprivation. Secure attachment is defined as the quality and strength of a parent-child bond. It's the way in which that bond forms and develops, how it can be damaged, and how it can be repaired. And it's the long-term impact of separations, losses, wounds, and deprivations. It's a theory of love as the central force in human life. And so fundamentally, secure attachment is when the answer to that question is profoundly positive, where strong emotional bonds between one child and one particular female caregiver are intact from early childhood and beyond. The quality of those first loving bonds, particularly with mom or some mother figure, shape us. You see, the quality of those first loving bonds, particularly with mom or a mother figure, shape whether we get love right in our adulthood. Our first relationship with a mother or mother figure predominantly determines our future well-being. Just pause with me on that. It's, It's a profound statement, and it shapes so much of who we've become. And it has so much of the kind of hidden treasure map to becoming wholehearted. Our first relationship with a mother or mother figure predominantly determines the future of our well-being. But you see, most people in the place of secure attachment, and all people, to some degrees, because of the assault against secure attachment, receive and experience some other condition. And it's been named by some as maternal deprivation. Maternal deprivation can express itself in a myriad of ways, but it's things like inconsistency 
by mom, where mom is cold instead of being warm, when she's unresponsive instead of responsive or attentive to our needs. Mom may be preoccupied with her own maternal deprivation, with being overcome perhaps by anxiety or depression. It happens when mom can't rhythm well with a child or intuit, and she can't cooperate with the child's needs, where she may be rejecting or withholding. Perhaps mom is imposing her own schedule on a child in their youngest formative months and years, and their own schedule of feeding, affection, and play. It's when mom is not available or she's distracted. And other times it's simply just benevolent incompetence. When someone is not in touch with their own soul as a woman, she, she develops in a way where she can't rhythm and, and move with the child and instead has just a sort of benevolent incompetence. But one of the biggest ones is simply mom being distracted. And technology is one of the great culprits of this, where mom might physically, for example, be present to breastfeeding, but she's on her device and she's not engaged with the child in the nuances of touch and response, the nuances of eye contact and responding to the child's movement and cues. What happens in maternal deprivation in research is shown through the late 1900s that there's a pattern from protest to despair to detachment, that a child first goes in full protest because they're not getting what they need, and then they turn to a despair. But worst of all, it eventually comes to a state of detachment where the soul becomes indifferent to maternal care. I wanna make a bold statement today as we're spending this time. I believe that this condition of maternal deprivation is the greatest force in shaping for men our experience of lack, our disunity with God, our reaching through addictions and all the patterns and practices that come with it, and our dysfunction in feminine relationships in their every form. Now, let me say that again, because this is a bold statement, but I believe the condition of maternal deprivation is the greatest force shaping our experience of lack, shaping our disunity with God, shaping our reaching through addiction, and shaping our dysfunction in feminine relationships with daughters, with wives, with women in the workplace, feminine relationships in every form. It's fascinating, the studies on this. A lot of it I draw from a book, Becoming Attached, which you can find a link for on the mothering page. It did some fascinating studies where children were tested at 18 months, 18 months old, less than two years, and they were put in two groups. And one was a group of securely attached children. The other was a group of kids with non-secure attachment or what we would name as maternal deprivation. And it was fascinating that at 18 months old, there were profound distinctions between these two groups of kids. They're distinctions that you could normally maybe call personality, temperament, but in fact, they lined up absolute consistency with secure attachment, maternal deprivation. And what they found was with children at 18 months old, they were better if they were securely attached. They were much more competent to manage their desire. They had a greater capacity to not fall apart under stress. The securely attached children at 18 months were more persistent, more enthusiastic, more responsive, and more imaginative. Friends, this is purely at 18 months. Now let's take the other extreme. Studies have shown that they, they began this with the secure attachment study theory and doing uh, extensive research in the mid-1900s that they found in 70-year-old men, the number one factor in shaping who they had become was the presence or lack of strong emotional bonds with a single consistent feminine caregiver. Now think about that. You have a 70-year-old man in all the factors, the single greatest continuity that shaped the health and well-being of those men in their latest 
decades was the presence of strong emotional bonds with a single consistent female caregiver in their first years of age. Here's another fascinating illustration of this. There's much talk today about the personality characteristic of narcissism. What's fascinating is the research has shown that an infant needs to experience being the center of someone's world, that actually when an infant is born, they need to be communicated to, that they're the center of the world, that their needs matter, that they experience value and worth, that they are a priority, that they're given abundant provision, that someone will respond to their needs. And a child needs that in order that they might mature and begin exploring a world in which they're not the center. And so what's fascinating is you see this pattern in secure attachment where if a child is immersed in love, saturated with provision, well-being, that is being tended to by a caregiver that intuits its needs and listens for its feeding schedule, for its sleep schedule, and for what its body is asking for in the earliest months of its life, that child from that place of secure attachment now is free to explore, is free to establish a sense of otherness, and free to go roam and venture and look towards other things and other people because it comes from a safe place. It, and that extrapolates into adulthood where a healthy human being can live for others out of a reservoir. And what's fascinating is most narcissistic people have never had that. The studies have shown that when they've done kind of um, story mapping, of people with very strong narcissistic tendencies, so often there is a strong correlation with narcissism and maternal deprivation, that their soul never experienced that satisfaction of being the center of someone's universe. And so as a result from that um, disjointed and broken part of the soul, they've never matured out of the desperate need to be the center of everything. And so it's actually this beautiful paradox that once a child develops secure attachment, they can actually live in service to other people. In a recent teaching on this, I was using some clips from the Netflix series, The Crown. It's the story of the uh, monarchy in England for several generations. It's a fascinating study on what men and women do with power. And it's beautiful to watch these characters form over decades and see the impact of all different influences on their lives. In In the Crown, in one of the seasons, there's the story of Queen Elizabeth, who is the proper queen. She is very put together. She plays the part. She serves in every proper way. And there's the sister of the queen who is the wild child. And she's the one that wanted to be queen, but like we all want to be matadors. It was more for the roar of the crowd and the tight pants, as the matador would say. But she was the wild child and she wanted to marry a man who was already married and it was high drama and that marriage was called off. And then she turned kind of this raging heart to another wild man that she had met. And this man was a photographer, but that was the external kind of label. What's more curious and what's more interesting is the internal landscape of his masculine soul. When we meet him, he is sort of distant. He has this voyeuristic personality. I would describe him as amoral as he's presented in the film. He's pursuing her, but he's very detached. He is often cynical about marriage, particularly in all of its forms. He's very cynical about um, formal traditions. He's very cynical about the traditional family. And he has this uh, photography practice where he's actually, there's a scene of him sexually abusing this beautiful woman where he's using his skill and his gifting to manipulate her into this sexual episode. And he's actually doing that while he's in relationship with the queen's sister. 
And so all the while this story is unplaying where you see his callousness, his cynicism, and yet he's a really good man. He's deeply artistic and he's masculine in many ways. He's offering a strength, but there's also something very devious and divided, or I would say do duplicitous in him. There's a split. There's a division. Literally, in one point, he's engaging the woman who he eventually intends to marry. And the next scene, he's having a three-way sexcapade with another woman and her husband. And it just shows this, this mockery of the institution of marriage. As you watch the scene, it causes me to wonder, what is his story of feminine love? When you just back up from all of the externals, but you ask the question of the soul of the man, what is his story of feminine love? If you have a chance to watch the series, eventually you'll see that indeed he does marry the queen's sister. And perhaps one of the most powerful scenes of the entire series, he is now driving with a royalty into the wedding into the great hall, probably a cathedral like St. Paul's. And there's pomp and circumstance and thousands upon thousands of people for the royal wedding. He's in the car with his mother. And what we witness is one of the most sad scenes I've seen in film. And it's a story that plays out a thousand times every day. He is with his mother and in many ways, he's a little boy. Though he's a grown man and he has prestige and he's almost trying to show off for her to say, mom, look at all this. Aren't you proud? And she is distracted with her own superficiality. And he says to her out of a true place, you know, I thought that just once you might tell me that you loved me, that you were proud of me. And even in all of this, in all of this that I've earned, that I've accomplished, you haven't yet told me you're proud of me or you love me. And her response is pitiful and it's violent to the soul. She's distracted and she completely ignores the reaching of the soul of the man in this situation. And so he goes on, he marries the woman but most of what she gets out of the marriage is an uninitiated boy. And in time, he simply does what he knows to do. He repeats the pattern of infidelity. And it goes on, this brilliant man with a big, deep, vast heart who is never initiated, who's never transformed, and never able to offer the strength in which he was intended to bring. Friends, I use that story of the crown to simply ask the question, how is it going? How is that storyline for you? What needs excavated? If you were to do an inventory of your story of receiving and reaching for feminine love, what would it look like? Part of this is simply revelation. Part of it is praying into your story. Part of it's doing homework. Part of it's asking God for clues, but recovering the storyline of what was your life like when you were in the womb? In other words, what was your mother's life like? What was her external reality? What were her circumstances? What was the condition of her soul? What was she thinking and feeling? What was your life like in the first year of your life? About the first three years of your life, as you transition into boyhood, what was the story of feminine love? How did you receive it? Where did you first capture beauty? outside of mom, what women or what girls or what things grabbed the attention of your masculine soul. Remember, it's the beauty I longed for beyond the beauty I longed for in her. Who was her? Who was she? What stuck for your soul? And then as you made those shifts in that kind of 10 to 12-year-old, beginning those first stages of masculine initiation out of boyhood, and then those teenage years, and then going from teenager to early adulthood and into adulthood, what was your story of feminine love? 
I did a fascinating collaborative document with a group of Become Good Soil intensive alum on this very topic. We went through the doorway of comfort and we made two categories of where do we receive comfort? Where do we look for comfort? And it was a fascinating brainstorm because everyone is unique and then also there's universal patterns that come out. I believe there's unhealthy practices we use for self-comforting and then there's healthy practices where we receive comfort that comes to us from the heart of God. And it's not the thing itself, but it's the motive and the reaching for the thing. For example, exercise is a great practice that many people and many of us can use at certain times to receive God's care, to receive fresh rushes of dopamine in our body, even oxytocin if we're in beautiful natural environments. But also, many of us, me especially, can use exercise as an unhealthy practice of self-comforting, using it as an escape using it as a substitute. And so we did this fascinating practice of these unhealthies and then these healthy practices. I wanna just read some as an example by way of illustration. So this was unhealthy practices I used to self-comfort. And this was a, a couple hundred men coming together, coming up with this list. These are things I do for self-comfort. I browse online auctions, I get small, I worry. I use sugar, I use distraction, carbs, alcohol, masturbation, I use chocolate, caffeine, or YouTube, news feeds of technology, the practice of being a victim, binging on Netflix, detaching from responsibility and hiding, going passive, video games, alcohol, food. These are all examples of ways that a group of really godly men regularly reach for self-medicating, self-comforting. Here's a list of practices that men, when they wrestled with the category of comfort, how do you receive comfort and compare and compassion from God? How do you access the beauty we long for beyond the beauty we long for in her. Here are some examples. Soaking in a hot tub, crying when I need to cry, taking naps, listening to the struggles of other people, serving my family, deep breathing, drinking refreshing water, receiving care from physical therapists, enjoying conversation, warm sunlight, a one-minute pause, sitting by a campfire, enjoying a cigar, taking a walk, experiencing yoga classes led by female teachers, immersing myself in ocean water, taking long showers, decaf coffee, enjoying a really good beer, but only one, gardening, shooting a compound bow, listening to beautiful music, reading something interesting and engaging. Friends, these are examples of the rubber meets the road experiences of ways in which God is mothering us, ways in which God is inviting us to recover healthy feminine love. God is in the business of repairing insecure attachment that God is very interested in mothering the unmothered parts of our souls, the parts of, that had been deprived of that which was intended to come through mother. And the young places in us that attach to a woman or demand that femininity in its very finite forms bring the infinite personhood of the life of God to our souls. God is interested in nourishing us on a daily way. Our souls can be repaired. The core promise of the gospel from which all other promises flow is God has come to seek and save what was lost. At the 
epicenter of our identity is that we are sons to a loving father and a loving mother. And this journey of becoming good soil, this journey of excavation, the journey of slow and steady is a constant repairing of our parenting by God, where we grow in interdependency union and ultimately reestablish secure attachment with God himself. And it's from that place that we're able to rule and reign with dignity, with care, with strength, and with compassion. And so friends, I have some homework for you today. This is just the beginning. I want to introduce this idea of how are you being reparented by God? What is your story of feminine love? So I want to start with some questions. Your homework for this week and perhaps this year and hopefully most importantly this decade. What is your story with food? Literal physical food. What's your relationship with food over the decades? Sometimes there's nothing like the concrete, the specific to help unpack the mysteries that our souls need. What is your story with comfort? This is the second question. Where did you turn for it? And what was the outcome? What is your story of comfort? Where did you turn for comfort? And what was the outcome? Question three, how are you daily receiving masculine validation? And then fourth and final, how are you daily receiving feminine nourishment? Friends, what if from the headwaters of the Holy Trinity is a God who encapsulates all things masculine and all things feminine? What if this restoration project is primarily rooted in coming home to God as Father in order that we might come home to God as Mother? What would it look like to know in the depths of your being, in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in will, in your imagination, masculine love and feminine love in its restored sense? As I've said earlier, I've taught on this topic before. It's a big one and it's a wide, it's vast, it's deep, and there is more for you. And so I would encourage you to listen to this podcast again, to return to it with fresh eyes, ask God for the portion and find more at becomegoodsoil.com forward slash mother. Finally, I wanna leave you with the mantra that I introduced earlier that was borrowed from Beekner's phrase. I long for the beauty beyond the beauty I long for in her. I long for the beauty beyond the beauty I long for in her. Friends, there is much to be repaired in our relationships with women, in our relationships with mom, our relationships with our brides, our relationships with our growing daughters, our relationships with women in the workplace, in the schools, in the communities. I invite you to try on that mantra and to know that when we see the beauty, when we respond to the beauty, when we reach for the beauty, that perhaps there's a beauty we long for beyond the beauty we long for in her. What if it was available? What if it was coming? What if we were being pursued by that beauty? What if you belong? What if there's a place for you? What if you did nothing to earn that belonging and you could do nothing for it to be taken away? God, I want to know you at the depths of your being, and I want to be known by you in the depths of my being. 
your scriptures give these prophetic invitations where you say, God, that you will pour out robust well-being into us like a river, that you will provide nourishment, that we will literally nurse at your breast in Isaiah 66, that we will nestle in your bosom, that we will be bounced on your knee, that as a mother comforts her child, you will comfort us that all of this will result in us bursting with joy and feeling 10 feet tall because it will become apparent to us, God, that you are on our side and you are against our enemies. Father, I confess that I constantly place limits on who you can be and what you can do and how you can do it. I want to know you in every depth and breadth and dimension of your trueness. I want to receive comfort that only you can give, nourishment that only you can give. Uh, you come and say, you can be satisfied on me, that you are a shepherd. In you, I will not lack. I want to know the God in whom there is no lack to know abundance in full measure, saturated well-being, to know increasing joy in the face of adversity, profound abundance in a world of scarcity. I invite you, God, in all of your masculine expressions and all of your feminine expressions to parent me you set the lonely in family. I want to come home to your family afresh and anew. I'm asking for your supernatural intervention, your supernatural care in this space and in this way. Come God, more of you invited into more of me. Show me the way. Amen.